Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement, your source for news and commentary from a cultural and right of center perspective. African American Conservatives. Welcome to African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. I'm your host, Marie Strotter, reminding you to go to acons.substack.com. There you'll find links to this podcast, where you should subscribe, by the way, uh, and also all of our social media platforms and our commentary. Today, we are blessed to have with us back on the show, Brian Kilmeade. He is the host of Fox News Channel's morning show, Fox and Friends, and hosts the daily national radio show, The Brian Kilmeade Show and the Fox Nation series, What Made America Great. He is the author of seven New York Times bestsellers, and he just released what will be his eighth bestseller, which is entitled Teddy and Booker T, How Two American Icons Blazed a Path for Racial Equality. Welcome back to the show, Brian. Thanks for having me on, Marie. I appreciate it. You've written a number of best-selling books on American history, many of which, like The President and the Freedom Fighter and Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates, we've been fortunate enough to have you uh, on to discuss. What attracts you to certain historical events like those that we see in Teddy and Booker T? And what's your process for researching these events? Well, what I want to do is move up in time. So I took me 20 years looking at George Washington's Secret Six. I kept telling people, this is the most unbelievable story. Washington had a spy ring. And I watched how captivated people were when I told them, because I grew up in Long Island and this is where the spy ring was. And I would go, when I had my free time, go to these little libraries. And I always thought there was Museum of Natural History, there was Library of Congress, and there were presidential libraries. That was it. I realized there were so many great people in this country trying to keep our history alive in these small little shacks with these artifacts, hoping people would come by so they can explain their story. A lot of people think these reenactors are actors. They might be, but mostly they're historians. And I thought, uh, let me see if I can get this book done. It would be a great movie. They said, if you write, if you write a, a book and you sell one copy, it's so much easier to make a movie out of it. So I said, all right, I'll do it. Well, it sold over a million copies. Because oh, wow. people loved American history that they didn't know about. You know the characters, Washington. You know, you know, about, uh, you know about other famous people, Hamilton. But did you know about these supporting people lived and died without any fame and acclaim? So then they said, I said, I was done. And they said, well, Brian, you got to do another book. See if you can build on this. You saw how happy people were to learn about history. So then I came up with Thomas Jefferson and Tripoli Pirates because I don't think I can do these major characters. Nobody wants to see another Benjamin Franklin biography from me or Washington. But I said, what if I just grab these little known poor parts? And I can't do a Teddy Roosevelt biography better than John Meacham or or uh, Booker T. Washington better than he could do it. He wrote so many books. But I go, what if I talked about their relationship? And that's what I found with uh, Frederick Douglass and Lincoln. I can't do I can't do a better Lincoln biography, the most written about president ever. But what if I focus on his relationship with Douglass? Because Douglass's David Blight did a biography on Douglass and it got book of the year. I go, wow, great. I'm going to do it better. No way. But if I just focused on their relationship and how it affected our country, and I just thought, man, Teddy Roosevelt, Sagamore Hill, right along Island, know all about him. I knew about roughly about Booker T. But as soon as I picked up Up From Slavery and greater and larger education, I go, this is unbelievable. 
he was doing Norman Vincent Peale, uh, Napoleon Hill, yes. Anthony Robbins, Power of Positive Thinking before they even knew the term. He just envisioned what he could become and what the country was. He didn't say, well, we're not equal. You're right. It's not right what they were treating African-Americans. It's true. Well, watch me overcome it. And I go, and watch me become such an impact player that Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Uh, Morgan, uh, Rosenwald would sit there and say, how could I help this guy make Tuskegee better? And when, Tim, when he got to meet Tay Roosevelt and Tay Roosevelt wanted to meet him, they said, how can we work together? So in a time in which also we talk about his division, the George Floyd riots and the Kaepernick antics, yeah, there's problems. But look at how far we've come. Look how much better we have we are because of great Americans like this. And, you know, that's such an important point, because the last time you were here, we were talking about Frederick Douglass and we talked about, you know, how they took down the monument mm -hmm. and all of this defacing of history and trying to strip us of our history. Um, and Booker T. Washington, as you just mentioned, is so important in history, period, but in black history because of what you just mentioned, the whole thing about the trades and at a time when we've got student debt so high. Uh, it's so important to understand that there are entrepreneurial things that we can be doing in the black community. When I grew up in the 60s and early 70s, there were so many black owned businesses, you know, and so it's such an important thing. And so I'm so glad that you right. are helping us to reconnect with history. Right. Uh, what I want to do is I don't want to whitewash what segregation was with Jim Crow. Right. I'm never going to do that. If I do that, I, I don't belong in this conversation. But I wanted to say, okay, how do they overcome it? Like, what led to the 60s? Well, first, and I think we agree on this, that the biggest disaster to ever hit America was not bin Laden. It was John Wilkes Booth. Because if, if Lincoln was able to work with Douglas and Ulysses S. Grant through the 60s, no, uh, uh, no vice, racist vice president taking over, and we were able to work our way through, we probably wouldn't have needed the 1960s. I'm not saying it would have been easy. But he knew exactly what we were up against. And when he was assassinated in 1865, man, we lost a lot in terms of our reconstruction. So here is Booker T. Washington, literally born a slave. He looks around and he never, this guy never had shoes, slept on the floor, had the same meal every day, remembers being brought to the central house and having a soldier read something which he thought in retrospect with the Emancipation Proclamation, finding out he was free. And then saying, heading to West, what we now know as West Virginia, where he wouldn't get an education even though he thirsted for it. He had to work in the salt mines. And all he did was dream and imagine what an education could do and how America would be better if he could do it. And even though you would think he might hate life, he didn't. He made the most of life. He wanted to get out of those salt mines. He was claustrophobic, working with older men, never sees the light of day, working with his stepfather and his brother. And then his, the power, I believe, that we all possess, that if you want something, things happen. If you want it for the right reasons and bad enough. He overhears his friends complaining about this woman who, he, he's their upkeep. He's their, up, uh, he's their upkeeper, the housekeeper, does everything around the, the grounds, and she's impossible to please. He goes, who is this woman? He goes and introduced himself. He goes, I hear the job's open. I, I love this job. And she came up very crass and tough. He's like, no problem. If he gets out of me in the salt mines, I'll do it. And he gets permission to do it. Next thing you know, Mrs. Ruffner lets him stay there and she starts teaching him to read and write first the alphabet, teaches him how to hold himself, how to dress, the hygiene, how to talk without an accent. 
And this guy, all he thought was more opportunity. All he thought was being thankful. All she saw was potential. And then he willed himself to Hampton College when he overheard somebody talking about, if you get to this college, they will accept you. And he got there and he was a mess. And they go, go home. He was because he had hitchhiked, what we'd call hitchhiking. And when yeah. he shows up, they go back, they send him out again. Then they finally say, well, what do you want? He goes, I want to be a student here. Well, how do you, how do we know you can be a student? He goes, show me, I need a janitor to clean that classroom. Mrs. Ruffner taught him how to clean better than anybody else. Clean another, clean another. Let's clean one together. You're hired as a janitor. You can go to school at night. He ends up being one of the best students they ever had. One of the best teachers they ever had. One of the most talented people they ever had. And when it was time to recommend someone to start a new college, it was Booker T by a white man named General Armstrong, 24-year-old Booker T. Washington, goes to Alabama to start a college, and the legend begins. That is such an inspiring story. It really, truly is. Now, you begin, Teddy and Booker T., by saying, in moments of need, American heroes have always arisen. In the mid-19th century, Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass uh, formed a unique friendship to confront slavery. By century's end, Theodore Roosevelt and Booker T. Washington, an equally unlikely pair, emerged as the heirs of the Lincoln-Douglas partnership, end quote. What made the Roosevelt-Washington friendship so important, in your opinion? Well, it's unlikely, obviously. Number one, people go, well, Roosevelt was so rich and Booker T was born a slave. Right. But we all have circumstances to overcome. There's a lot of people here rich with money with parents ignore them. And you might as well uh, might as well have been an orphan. Um, So Teddy Roosevelt had a different challenge. He had an unbelievable father who did not fight in the Civil War because his mom was a Confederate. the brothers fought for the Confederacy, and she did not want him to fight against his own family, our own family, even though they're living in the North. So she paid somebody to fight. And that was the one thing that Teddy Roosevelt, in the back of his mind, said, I got to make up for what my dad did, not fighting. His dad always regretted it. And number two, he was so sick. His asthma was so bad. And it wasn't just my opinion. When I did tw- when I interviewed Tweed Roosevelt's great-grandson, who remembers playing at Sagamore Hill as a kid, and remembers Teddy Roosevelt's wife. She lived into her 80s. He died before at 60. So he remembers her. So they heard firsthand how bad the asthma was. They did not think that he would survive childhood. He could not go to school. He had to learn at home. He was about 90 pounds, 95 pounds going into uh, Harvard. And his dad used to say to him, you know, you have a great mind. You have a terrible body. You have to build up your body. And when he started getting over the asthma, he built up his body. His dad was so impressed, he bought him weights. And he overcompensated for his meekness and weakness, being bullied as a kid, feeling like he couldn't play with the other kids. And then he ends up coming into his own in college, writing a book about the War of 1812 and wanting to bring this country together and knowing they had a serious race problem. And one day he's reading up from slavery, got an advanced copy. Him and his wife read it, eat it. And they say, I got to meet this Booker T. Washington in 1901, I believe. They meet him in Manhattan. And he says, listen, I'm vice president now, but I want to work with you when I become president. And he goes, sure. He goes, I'd like to visit Tuskegee. He goes, absolutely. But next thing you know, McKinley gets shot. They have to cancel the appointment. The letter exists of him saying, sorry, I'm president now. I can't get down there. I apologize, which is unbelievable to me. And He says, when they go and meet, he goes, I want you to be my advisor. I want you to tell me about judges. I want the best people. I don't want you to worry about race. I want to know in the South what's going on. I want to heal this country. And those are my words, paraphrasing a lot of his words. 
by the way, unbelievable vocabulary, incredible writer, Roosevelt was. So here is this man now, so influential, the richest people in the country know him and support him. The university system is something to be admired. And the president of the United States wants him as an advisor. For those of you out there who said, life is stacked against me, uh, I'm, a, I'm a minority, I'm, a, I'm the wrong gender, the wrong minority, uh, this country's whatever. I guarantee you things aren't as bleak as they were for Booker T. Washington, who never knew his father and had to force his way into an education and he overcame it all while never not acknowledging the segregation that exists and the double standards that were taking place. <clears throat> That's so amazing. Now, uh, among the interesting parallels between the two, between Teddy Roosevelt and uh, Booker T. Washington in your book is how both set about remaking themselves when they were young. And you just alluded to some of that. Washington dedicated himself to proving his education and his body, while Roosevelt worked hard to improve himself physically. Uh, can you expand on some of the parallels between the two? Yes. Take your greatest weakness, make it your greatest strength. I have no education. I don't have any of influence. I don't know anybody of power. So what you do is start with an education, impress people with your work ethic, and they'll want to help you more. And that's what happened. He learned to speak because a, a professor took an interest in him at, uh, at Hampton College. Uh, he learned to lead because General Armstrong said, this guy has worked so hard in school, yeah. is such a learner, he learned to lead. Now, I, I had to go back and research because I'm reading his book. He never says white man. He never says no. black man. I had to go back and go, wait a second, uh, General Armstrong, general in the army, he had to have been white. I had to go back and look it up because he only saw, he said he was the greatest man he ever met. He didn't say the greatest white man I ever met, the greatest man right. I ever met. So General Armstrong was lending Tuskegee money. Why would he do that? So not everybody would thought uh, whites were better than blacks and or blacks were should be treated differently. I wanted to get that point to get across. And then here's a guy with no management experience, no building experience, but he had to work with his hands as a kid through his life because he had to make his way. So he said, when I learned to work with my hands and then I built up my mind, all my students are going to do both. So he said, if you're night school during the day, you're going to be agriculture. You're going to be a blacksmith. You're going to be a construction worker. You're going to make bricks. I'm going to get a kiln. You're going to have an expertise in something. Why? Because America wasn't ready to perhaps hire you because you're black. So you're going to make yourself inv invaluable as a skilled worker or else you're going to work for yourself or someone can't help but hire you. You'll prove you will single-handedly, by your actions, take down the stereotypes people, through no fault of their own, grew up learning were staples of society. Everybody knows blacks, whites are smarter than blacks. Everybody knows that whites are smarter than blacks. You learn that your whole life, you expect you're going to grow up that. Everybody knows in America you can accomplish anything you want, Right. So all of a sudden, mate, mom and dad might be wrong. I won't buy Tuskegee. They're the nicest, kindest people. They just they just donated a, a wagon into our town and said, courtesy of Tuskegee. They just donated bricks to help me build my house. These are the kindest people. I went to their commencement address. They have great events there. So if I grew up and my parents were brought up racist, I'm I'm I learned differently. So he said, I can't change you by maybe my words. But what if I change you with actions by educating thousands of people, not only with their minds, with their bodies and give them trade skills like Mike Rose on the back of this book, because I call Mike Rose because he's so into blue collar and learning the trade. Yeah. 
because I go, Mike, you're not going to believe this. He knew it was a problem in 1880. He knew it was a problem in 1890. And he knew, he said the one thing, and this is what Governor DeSantis couldn't uh, um, enunciate correctly or elaborate on effectively. When he came out and says out of slavery, the good thing to come out of slavery is to learn to skill. There's nothing good that comes out of slavery. But the fact is that almost everyone who emerged from the, after the Civil War had a skill. And the fact is a lot of white people didn't because black people did everything for them. That is just a fact. I'm not minimizing anything. And so if he, Booker T says, okay, that's your skill. Now I'm going to work your mind. You don't have a skill. You're 17 years old. You grew up in a free America. You're going to get one or you're not going to graduate. And I'm going to tease your mind. And the black parents were not happy. They go, no, I want my kids to have more. I want them to use their mind. He's like, America's not ready to hire you yet yeah. in a lot of places. So you're going to, I'm going to have to make your kid invaluable. And guess what? Female teachers, his wife, the the women were treated and they learned their skills too. And they went to school, which was, you know, listen, women weren't voting in America then. Yeah. So I found it really inspiring. Yeah. America imperfect at the time, like the rest of the world. And then you, there's this one guy just being doing his own intellectual John Henry with a, a sledgehammer breaking down walls while not having resentment and anger towards the people that put him up. That's absolutely right. Now, another parallel between Roosevelt and Washington is that they were both children during the Civil War and teens during most of the Reconstruction era. Yeah. What impact do you think those events had on these men? Yeah, I mean, I open up and I have a special November 5th and it's going to be on Fox Nation if people are watching the podcast after this. And I open up and I say, uh, this is on Broadway in New York City. This is where Abraham Lincoln's body came down his casket. And overhead is the window that six-year-old Teddy Roosevelt looked out of because his parents knew it was his grandparents' house. This would be a moment in history that you should never forget. He grew up worshiping Lincoln and being a true student of history. So he fully understood what America was like and what it has to be and the problems it had. And then he grows up with the sobering nature of not having a Lincoln to bring us through it and soon not having a Grant to lead us through it. Grant was also an underrated superstar for America, not just the way he fought a war, but the way he led a country, in my view. His only problem was he trusted people too much, in my view. Um, Number two is Booker T. Washington. You have to tell him about the inequality, white water fountains, black water fountains, white uh, uh, bathrooms, black bathrooms, separate but equal. You'll go to school with blacks. You will not go to school with whites. Uh, We're not going to bother you. You don't bother us. He knew that couldn't be a long-term success for the country. So he didn't have to learn about it from a book. He had to do it from experience. And they also knew that if you grow up in it, you sense you can fix it. And then if you become a person of power and prominence, you now have a venue to do it. So if that answers your question, I believe that seeing the problems, wanting one thing to make the country better and better for all people. They said that when I become a person of influence, I'll affect it. When you become president, you're affecting it. When you become um, someone who's nicknamed Moses, Black Moses, um, I think that you can definitely make a difference. And when he goes overseas, because they insisted on taking a vacation, his students and faculty sent him on vacation with his wife because he worked so hard. They were afraid of collapsing like General Armstrong did. They sent him on vacation. 
and he couldn't believe how well he was received and and how he was able to give wild you know rousing speeches he saw the potential but i'll i'll split this at him again he says even though they were further ahead of us when it comes to race he found that people were very content in the place they were in society and america still presented possibility yeah I'm lower and you have this opinion of me because of the color of my skin. But man, you just watch me. You're going to see how high I can go. He felt like in Europe, people were like, okay, this is where I'm born. This is where I'll stay. Lower, middle, middle, upper, working class, whatever it is. And he says, well, I, I would never be that content because I, I like the idea of the possibility of what I could become. I don't want the limitation that he felt the UK, France, um, and all of Spain were willing to accept, but he was able to travel and notice that. So when you travel around and you can get crowds like that, like Frederick Douglass, his statues of him in Ireland, statues of him in Ireland. I mean, you could, you could really affect things. So that's when you're in civil war and you see the problems and you're in post civil war reconstruction and you see it fall apart, you could say, well, this country's letting me down. My life is limited. Or you could say I could change things. Both these men change things. Brian, what was the compromise of 1877 and what effect did it have on Reconstruction? So in 1877, now think about this. We're only 10 years after a war in which uh, we, the Democrats said, I don't want to be part of this country. I'm not sending any senators or congressmen. Uh, we're going to fight a war. And they do. 600,000 died. OK, now that it's over, let's come together. Really? I don't think so. We're going to keep some troops in the South. Uh, we're going to make sure the people you... Uh, if you fought for the Confederacy, if you didn't have a, an allegiance to the country, you couldn't run for office. So I'm going to make sure that you you want to be part of America. So we're going to keep the Union troops there. Well, when Samuel Tilden is running against James Garfield, it ends up in a dead heat. There's problem in like six or seven states, Oregon, South Carolina, and a few others. And that they can't come up with a, 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 an effective tally. And they're deadlocked. And finally, they decided on a compromise. So he says, hey, I'll let you have your Samuel Tilden. I'll let Samuel Tilden's people said, uh, I'll let you have James Garfield, but you got to pull the troops out of the South. You got to let us make his own decisions, elect our own people. So he said, so Garfield says, yeah, I'll agree to this, but you got to promise you're not going to go back to your way, separate but equal. You're not going to go back to your, you're going to let everyone vote and have the same rights that they get in the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. And I said, fine. They lied. Next thing you know, we got Jim Crow. Next thing you know, we got separate but equal. Next thing you know, the Confederate troops start uh, become basically the police. There becomes poll taxes. There becomes competency tests. Uh, there becomes property needs in, in order to vote. There becomes intimidations and lynchings in order to make sure the black vote didn't undermine what the whites wanted in the South. And this was Democrat Republican. That whole South were all Democrats. And that came because... A lot of leaders at that time did not keep their promise. And that was the compromise because we were, we were in an election deadlock. And they said, man, are we going to fight a war again? So that was the compromise. And because of that, we had to wait another 50, 60 years to get blacks and whites to be able to pick their own seat on buses, on trains, at schools, jobs, voting, not worth it. Don't really want to get hanged today. Not going to show up. If I want to date a white woman or a white woman wants to date a, uh, a black guy, that'll get you hanged. Now, I'm not saying the North was perfect, but this was going on in a lot of areas in the South. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, yeah. I don't think I have to tell you. No, no, you don't. Now, you describe Roosevelt as someone who, in his youth, disliked unions and thought of himself as a laissez-faire man, opposed to government interference of most any sort, uh, quote unquote. Yet he eventually became one of our most progressive presidents. What changed him, Brian? I think seeing certain people locked out of wealth, seeing certain people get too much power, you know, breaking up these corporations, uh, which he thought was absolutely necessary to give the average person, the average guy, male, a shot. He also blew up bureaucracy. He established discipline in police officers, became the first police chief. Really, we didn't call him that then. I think they called him superintendent, but really first police chief of New York, where they set up standards, uniforms, academies. Um, um, they made people accountable. But he was uh, exposed to the immigration problem when he was commissioner of New York and saw they were being treated as the underclass, not even lower class, the underclass. So they come out of Ellis Island and they'd be used and abused. He had to stop that. He got exposed to that. And I think that he was became a lawmaker to stick up for the little guy. And he felt more comfortable doing that. He was a fighter and he hated inequity, but he was not a socialist. He wanted pure market economy and you couldn't do it if only a certain amount had all the wealth. That's what makes him so hard to deal with for Republicans today, Democrats to hate him and Republicans to relish him because he was also a huge environmentalist. And after his wife died the same day his mom died, uh, only weeks after, after weeks after his daughter was born, he goes out to the Midwest and he starts appreciating the environment, which we now know is North Dakota, which is the unsettled land, becomes a rancher. And sees what the, the elements these guys put up with and sees how hard they work. So little by little, he understands the urban environment by working in the city. He understands rich because he was born rich. He understands influential because he went to an Ivy League school. He understands the underclass because he worked as a police chief. Then he understands the expansive of America and rural living. Man, if you talk about a life lived resume to lead America, you are looking at it. But he's hard to categorize. Yes, a proud Republican. But it doesn't mean he's happy with corporations uh, consolidating power and not letting anybody else in. And it doesn't mean that he wants union and labor to have so much power that the people who run the unions have, have all the power, but the people who pay the union dues have none of it. So we saw a lot of the corruption involved in it. So that's the shape the person he was in. I think the biggest regret he had was announcing after he won election. Remember, he only elected once because McKinley was shot. He announced that I won't run again. And he said, the minute I announced it, I said, that was a problem. People started ignoring him, thinking about the next guy. Also, he's in his 50s. He's in the prime of his life. This guy has so much to give. He understood the job so well. He changed He changed the meaning of the presidency, made it, uh, made it someone people began to look up to. He was a rock star around the world before there were rock stars in the world. And when he said he's not going to run again, he's like, he, was, he was like a caged lion. Um, that was his one thing because he really started to get the job better than anybody else. Even though, again, young, you would think you got to be 65 or 70 these days in order to have the life experience like a George H.W. Bush. Yeah. But this guy got all of it so young. Think about this. By 60, he's passed away. Think about everything that he did. And by the way, a member of the Tuskegee board spoke at the commencement address and never came and spoke at Booker T. Washington's funeral, too. Wow. Now, you characterize Booker T. Washington's relationship with uh, W.E.B. DeBose as one of frenemies. 
what was the basis for this conflict? Well, and you'll see it with Alan West. Uh, a lot of people in the black community think that uh, Booker T. Washington sold out the black community in order to get along. In my view, 100 years later, studying everything that he wrote uh, and, the and the respect that he got, my sense, he looked at America that he was in, not the one he wanted it to be, but he was determined to make it better. So how do I exist, coexist, inspire a generation of African-Americans and others to change their beliefs, but do it in the South? How easy would it have been for him to go and hang out with Andrew Carnegie? And, you know, he had a summer home in Northport. We do one of the stand-ups from there uh, in, Fort, in, in Northport, Long Island. It would have been easy for him to do that. But instead, I'm going to start a school in, in the impoverished South, in the Alabama, where there wasn't much money. I'm going to grow that school, grow that university. My students are actually going to build that school. We're going to be, a, we're going to be uh, emblematic of what the African-American community could be. Where W.E.B. Du Bois says this is so wrong. The lynchings are bad. The intimidations at the voting booths got to stop. The burning down, people being burned alive because they're dating people of a, of a different ethnic background. Uh, the iniquity of pay. The not hiring certain people, not being able to hold elective office. That's not what the Constitution says. He had a point. He formed the NAACP, pushed back. But I think that, I think one's an activist and one actively changed America. One left a legacy of hundreds of years of an education, of a trade education and a formal education, changed, changed generations. And one wrote a lot, never really started a business. And as Bob Woodson said, who was on a special, you know, he died in an indescript, a nondescript uh, a grave in Ghana. And he had an impactful life, great intellect, but he never lived through a lot of the things he criticized. Where, what, where you have Booker T. Washington brings you right through it and made America better as imperfect as it was then. And he was a critic of Booker T. Washington because he felt as though he was giving too much to get along. And what Booker T. Washington did is I had he had to preserve Tuskegee. If he went out too far in a limb, that place burns down. The donations stopped. The kids stopped coming. And the students stopped producing. So he had, to, God, he had to always be acceptable to white people who weren't enlightened at the same time bring up African-Americans. And people were critical of that. And they said, well, you know, why are you hobnobbing with all these rich and famous when you know so many people are suffering in the South? Because because that money is coming South. Those people understand our plight and they're helping us. People of power can help more than people without power. It doesn't mean they're different. It's a fact. And W.E.B. Du Bois, in many ways, thought he was a sellout, even though that one point he got an offer mm -hmm. to teach at Tuskegee and he turned it down. And right now, more people, I think, sadly, are subscribing to W.E. Du Bois. It's not cool to like Booker T. Washington today. Yeah, that is very true in the black community. And I don't understand why. I mean, I homeschooled all three of my children. Two went to college. One got his Bachelor of Science degree at 20. Um, you know, but I've got one kid who has a bit of a cognitive delay and, you know, the trades are more for him. And so, you know, not everybody fits into a one size fits all mold. And so right. that's one thing that we need to understand as a community. There's a place at the table for everyone who wants to be there. Yes. 
they thought he wasn't admitting that there were racists in America and the Atlanta speech that was so legendary when he talks about, we want to get along. We don't condemn you. I don't hate you. Don't hate us. Just let us flourish and watch us go. And he said, well, you should have called them out. You should have called them out because white people were not treating black people good and they were not giving them equal opportunity. It's like, okay, but I'm changing it rather than complaining about it. He wrote about it, studied it, understood the black cause and, and the understanding what African-Americans were going through. He wrote these brilliant papers about it. But this guy, Booker T. Washington, was much more hands-on. He lived yeah. every day to make other people's lives better. And he did it through Tuskegee and growing other HBCUs. So yeah. to me, I, I could, he could point to a legacy that still exists today. W.E.B. Du Bois can talk to at the NAACP and being upset where America, uh, what America wasn't instead of what America is and what it can be and what it's become. So I'm not saying, yeah. that, you know, I, I don't want to speak for anyone except Americans, but I don't I don't have the voice. All I know is greatness when I study it and if I can relay it and talk about the relationship between these great men and how they made the country better. That's my goal. But if you're a W.E.B. Du Bois, that's the guy. OK, just so you know, when you dismiss Booker T. Washington, you you dismiss someone who is the most practical person you'll ever want to meet, never talked down to anyone, never hated yeah. anyone, but tried to make the country better, the country that he was born into, and try to make it to one he thought we should be, while always loving the country along the way. I think a lot of people who they feel as though the country shows is not equal, and there's no perfect equality anywhere in life, but that's another conversation. I think that people don't understand how great this country is. And I know say, well, you're white and you have a certain feeling. Well, I could tell you 25 things that you probably, if you're black or Hispanic or Asian, that you have an advantage over me. That is, and a lot of people that you see walking on the street that you might think, well, they're dressed nice and they have a nice house. You don't know what they're, you know, what challenges that they have, they're going through and what they're dealing with. But I thought fundamentally, we have to agree on one thing. We're in a great country. When you have when you have a chapter when you grow up here you hit lotto and every day you have an opportunity to play in the Super Bowl and that's all Marie I don't know how you feel I don't want outcomes guaranteed I just want opportunity every day try to make an opportunity for yourself and for somebody else point out the the, the inequality and then help solve it without anger and move forward and notice how far we've come and how much better we are than almost everybody else. And then I think a lot of things will come together and we'll stop talking past each other and to each other. As long as we get the same objective, have the objective of making the country better, don't judge it. And if you really are that upset, please leave. That's absolutely right. That's an Alan Westism too, where he talks about the out yeah. outcomes. So you're yeah. absolutely right about that. Now, Roosevelt had, had a frenemy of his own in Mark Twain. Uh, who you quote is saying, quote, Booker T. Washington was a man of uh, worth a hundred uh, worth a hundred Roosevelt's, a man whose shoe latchets Mr. Roosevelt is not worthy to untie, end quote. Why did Twain hold this view? It's interesting. You know, in life, we see this with celebrities today and famous people today. They just some certain people don't get along. Mark yeah. Twain thought he was a showman. No substance, all show. <clears throat> and and Roosevelt never quite figured out why Mark Twain didn't like him. But, you know, famously, if people don't know Booker T. Washington and Teddy Roosevelt, know they had that famous dinner at the White House. What was the famous about it? It happened. Why was it a big deal? 
because back then, uh, no African-American had ever eaten with the family of the president at the time. In the South, it was uh, segregated and Jim Crow oriented. They did not want to think that uh, blacks could actually be equal to whites. And if you're eating and advising the president of the United States, how can I stop you from wanting a job or voting in an election? As twisted as that is, ended up being a huge controversy. So uh, he went up to Mark Twain. He said, you know, you know about the dinner. You see the controversy it caused when it leaked out. Do you think I was wrong? He goes, probably the country wasn't ready for it. it probably would have done it differently. That was the only civil conversation he seemed to have because it, he just thought that he was a phony war hero. He was all show, not a lot of substance. And Mark Twain, maybe he was jealous of him because he loved Grant. You know, he also was a big proponent of Grant, helped really write uh, Grant's uh, final papers that got him out of debt after he died brutally of throat cancer. Mark Twain was in every big fight. You always see him writing there. But he just says something about people. There's people watching me right now and go, I know one thing. I don't like that guy. Something about Mark Twain. He looked at he looked at Teddy Roosevelt and said that's the antithesis of Booker T. Washington, whose actions sell him. And he maybe thought that Roosevelt's words sold him. Yeah. Now, you quote uh, then Vice President Roosevelt as saying, as telling Washington that he wanted to help the Negro should he become president. Do you believe that Roosevelt was sincere in this desire? And was he successful in fulfilling his desire once he became president, in your opinion? I think so. A lot of it was done under the wire, especially after that dinner. And they have that dinner. There's all this blowback about blacks and whites. They had an event at Harvard. They're both getting honorary degrees or it was Yale. And they sat away from each other, didn't really acknowledge each other because the firestorm was so great. But he would keep advising him, put people like Minnie Cox, a person of color there, William Cummings, put him in uh, charge of the ports, uh, uh, Minnie Cox in charge of the postmaster, huge pushback in the region. But all he asked for Booker T. Washington is goes, give me name and judges. Not Don't tell me about the color of their skin. Tell me about the quality of they have. I just want good people. Don't just put people, don't give me people just because they're black or white. And he became a key advisor. So is that helping? Absolutely. When you have dinner, if you're a young American kid and you see Booker T. Washington walking around with a suit and tie, running a school, having Andrew Carnegie over for lunch, meeting with the president, am I believing that I now have possibility just by the role model I'm looking at? Absolutely. So I think that they moved, they did a lot. Uh, they did a lot under the wire. They did a lot with credibility. They did a lot by each other going and number one, going to the White House. They would meet again a lot, but they would do it at 1030 or 1230 or 2.30 in the afternoon. So they wouldn't have the controversy of having a meal together, but they would constantly be there. And then when you pull a president, McKinley did it too. When you pull McKinley and Teddy Roosevelt to speak at your school, if you're a young student at 17 or 22, and you look up and this, the president of the United States is saying that this school is important enough that you're graduating from, that I'm here speaking. Doesn't that show, doesn't that, couldn't that change a generation? I think so. You know what's so crazy about that, Brian? You know, I had the honor of serving on Black Voices for Trump. And President Trump got so much crap from the Black community. I mean, from a lot of communities, the Democrat community in particular. But, you know, he gave the most to HBCUs of any president before him. Right. You know, and you he got absolutely. Yeah, it was insane. And 
you know, I, I went to the White House every time they had, you know, a, a gala for Black History Month or whatever. And I saw him interact with Alveda King. I saw him interact with Diamond and Silk. I saw him interact with, you know, a host of Black luminaries. Well, and Tim he had Scott, a genuine... Yeah. What? Tim Scott. I'm sorry. Yeah, Tim Scott. Yeah. Uh, ben Carson. You know, I saw him uh, interact with people. And there was so much love and so much genuine he respect. Does, yeah. He does you not know? care about color. He, he doesn't care about color whatsoever. And it's so crazy that he was painted this racist. And yet, in contrast, you have someone in the White House now who, you know, they're going to put you all back in chains and affecting this kind of, you know, accent you and all of this sort of stuff. Yeah, you ain't black. I know. It was insane. And so, and yet he has decimated HBCUs. He's taken away that funding that President Trump gave. And so I couldn't help I didn't but realize see that. that he did. Well, I, I believe that that he hasn't um, done as much for the HBCUs yeah. as he. I mean, there are some things that he could have done that he did not do that President Trump was all in for. I mean, they had to do it every year, and he did it for like a ten-year block of time, so that they had that funding in place and saved a few a few of the colleges from going uh, out of business because they were bankrupt. They had debts that they had to pay. And um, President Trump did that. And so right. it's insane to think that he now has this legacy as this, you know, racist president uh, when he delivered more for the black community in the turn, like you were talking about with Tim Scott, you know, enterprise zones and all of these things to help generational black wealth. So um, I, I can't help but see that parallel when I, when well, we I have mean, the other thing is too, I remember when he was just a celebrity, and Snoop yeah. Dogg was there all the time. Al Sharpton yeah. was asking for money. He got an award from the NAACP yeah, from Jesse Jackson. Mike Tyson and him were fast friends. You don't do that just because you have money. You know, you you know, you if you hang out with white people if you're a racist, you do would never give them the time of day. But what happened is if you treat everyone equal and don't worry that some somebody's gonna say he's a racist, sometimes you say things that are ham-handed or racially insensitive, as Tim Scott would say. But He's like, oh, yeah, I'm not going to apologize. You know me. You know my track record. And I'll give you this quote on Teddy Roosevelt. This is from Booker T. Washington. There is no man who has been in the presidency since Lincoln who has been so deeply interested in the permanent and sensible elevation of our race. So not my words, Booker T. Washington's words. That's exactly right. Now, um, Interestingly, this is our last question. Interestingly, Washington said of Roosevelt, quote, there is no man who's been in the presidency, like you just said, um, the the uh, sensible elevation of our race. Yet Roosevelt's words and actions revealed him to be much less interested in this elevation than his own successor, William McKinley, or Lincoln's predecessors, Ulysses Grant. Why did Washington have such an overly generous opinion of Roosevelt's concern for African-Americans? Or do you think that's true? I think... Hmm. I mean, Grant was unbelievable. And having read that 1200 page book, I really feel like when he went, uh, when he dies at the end, I almost felt like I lost a family member, but I think it was, I think you got to go with what Washington said because he spent more quality time, one-on-one -on -one time with him and his family than any of those other guys. And he also know what it was like to be locked out. Taft liked him. Garfield liked him. Um, Grover Cleveland liked him, but Teddy Roosevelt loved him. And Woodrow Wilson locked him out. He was invisible to Wilson. Wilson was so proud of the fact that at Princeton, during his time as president of Princeton, that no African-Americans came during his time. 
I mean, that's how raging racist this guy was. And and that also was such a contrast for Booker T. Washington, because when Taft takes over, Taft loved it. Yes, Taft's like, oh, Booker T. Washington, what a great guy. And, you know, he wasn't responding like Teddy was, uh, T.R. was, but he was he was definitely liked him. And then he was just iced out and he would die uh, during well, during Wilson's uh, presidency. But I think it was the sincerity of when they were working together, the stuff they did below the radar, uh, the letters they wrote to each other, obviously. And then I read last night, reread his commencement address to Tuskegee. It was almost as if Teddy was, Ted T.R. was overwhelmed from what he saw. And to know that the students literally built the buildings that they learned in, from the construction students to the ones, the, kid, the ones who worked the kiln to make the bricks, he was just in awe of what was happening. And he wanted the country to be better. He knows they couldn't do it unless they healed this racial rift. And he saw that as the key. And I think Booker T. Washington really was honored that Teddy saw the merit in his life's work. They're the same age. I think that has a lot to do with it. And I also think when you spend time with people, you understand really what they're about. You don't wait for the speech because you already you already had an hour um, you know, shooting, um, just shooting the breeze. So that, that's why I think he said what he said. And look, if that's their opinion, who are we to judge? This, yeah. this is Booker T. Washington's opinion. Yeah. Our guest this segment has been Brian Kilmeade. His latest book is Teddy and Booker T, How Two American Icons Blazed a Path for Racial Equality. Brian, how can our audience find uh, information about the book and uh, any book signings? Yeah, at briankilmeade.com. I'm going to be in Connecticut, going to be in Texas. I'm going to be on stage in Red Bank, New Jersey, in Skokie, Illinois, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, and talking about all my books, an inspirational, motivational, patriotic night. So I don't sing, I don't dance, but I love getting to meet the people and be able to talk about what's in the news in a humorous, insightful way. It's fun. And talk about all the books, but especially this one. So hopefully people understand where we come and they'll appreciate where we are. So just BrianKillMe.com would be great. You get tickets there. Also, if people want personalized books, it goes to my local bookstore, like almost like 1-800-Flowers. I'll find out what they want me to write, and I, pu I pump it in. Awesome. I hope I get to see you when you come to Texas. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks for great questions, Marie. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Thank you. And, and now our part of the show where we bring in DK. Come on in, DK. How is that? That's Hola. pretty cool, huh? Hey. Very interesting. Yeah, very yeah, interesting. yeah. You know, you know what impact. he said is so true. It, it, you know how uh, uh, Du Bois is 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 venerated, and you know uh, Booker T. Washington is is not. Yeah, what well, W. B. was seen, seen as a early socialist. He, he did a yeah. lot of he did a lot of horrible things in the long term for the black community. You know, he he really helped push the the Margaret Sanger agenda onto yes. black people. So I'm not. As big a fan as W E of W E B as a lot of my contemporary no. blacks, but um, he, he was definitely influential and definitely a great intellectual. Oh, yeah. So it's interesting. It's not just W E B. It's Teddy Roosevelt, um, Franklin Roosevelt, um, Booker T. Washington. A lot of the people in this era, 
a lot of intellectuals on the left and the right can debate the impact these people had, especially in our current society. You know, you know, um, you talk about Teddy Roosevelt being this great uh, race leader. Uh, Brian was very passionate on the subject, but like you pointed out, you know, I'm not sure if Teddy Roosevelt was as committed to racial equality as his uh, predecessor of um, William McKinley and, and some other conservatives during that period. So it's a great debate to have. Uh, maybe maybe we could be able to uh, dive into those waters more thoroughly going forward. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you say that, too, because, you know, um, there are compromises, I think, in our community, because there are some people who want to be able to have a seat of influence. Um, and so, you know, you kind of look at how they comport themselves to be able to get to that place. Um, but there is no denying the fact that Booker T. Washington um you know, a lot of people look down on his emphasis on work and the trades and that kind of stuff. But as Brian pointed out, those are skills that they emerged with from slavery. And, you know, you and I have had that conversation about the personal benefit. I think that was just bad verbiage. Um, but I like the way that Brian put it, because you got those skills. That is a fact. Um, <clears throat> and so being able to use them in conjunction with an education, something that we were not allowed to have, and how he was able to marry those two and create an institution that still exists after a hundred and something years. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, it's very interesting. Another thing is, if you read American history, um, the standard of what it is to be racist is just changes over the over the years. I mean, at one point, especially if you read about colonial history, some of the great men who opposed slavery uh, did so without the belief that blacks are, were, or could ever be equal to the white men. Um, I was I was reading something about the great movement to have blacks ship back to uh, Africa, you know, and countries like mm -hmm. Sierra Leone and uh, Liberia mm -hmm. and so forth, and how that often turned out to be a disaster for the Blacks. But it was it was based on this complicated racial belief that Blacks did not, um, did not deserve to be in America as slaves, yet some of these people also did not think that Blacks should be in America at all. So... You know, they would never support Blacks being able to vote or own property and so forth. And so what's, you know, did they, a lot of them oppose slavery, but own slaves themselves. So that's that's the ultimate and <laughs> complicated racial thinking. Um, and even uh, go forward to uh, Teddy Roosevelt um, and other people of his ilk who supported Blacks to a degree, but it, there's always an intellectual academic debate of whether they did so with the belief that blacks were the equal to white men. So he's right. Brian was right that compared to people like a Franklin Roosevelt or especially Woodrow Wilson, who was a virulent racist, um, Teddy was definitely on our side, but maybe not as much as some other figures like McKinley and uh, Coolidge and uh, prominent people of that era. So, like I said, it would be a great debate to have one day.
So what is it that you want to talk about today? Uh, speaking of great men, I want to talk a little bit about Joe Biden, who, <laughs> 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 who is the greatest man who ever lived. Um, no, I'm just kidding. It's, it's interesting <laughs> that he's, we're, we're talking about uh, these debates people are having and trying to walk the line between this side and that side. And I just want to point out how Biden is trying to tightrope this um, Israel discussion because he he knows that to be a Democrat president, he has to be very supportive of Israel, but there are so many people in his party who are so filled with hatred toward Israel. And as we said before, they're not just anti-Israel, they're, they're actually pro-Islamic terrorists, um, which is a weird thing to say for a, a, a fellow American that they would be in favor of Islamic terrorism uh, but that's where we are and you see these who could you be talking about <laughs> I, I don't know could it be people uh, standing behind a podium screaming what's wrong with you yeah it's, uh, it's not just Congresswoman uh, Il- Ilan Omar Omar and Tlaib and, Tlaib. and those Tlaib. figures is is receiving academia where uh Professors are discriminating against Jewish students, or you see these big protests on campus, like even prominent schools like Harvard and so forth. You see it in New York City, which suffered more than any other city in in the country from Islamic terrorism. And they're protesting uh, Israel and putting up very pro-terrorist, you know, Hamas signs, you know, and, and they're they're cheering the killing of Jews, and they started doing this before we even had a final body count of that October seventh attack. And even when you tell them the horrors of what those Israelis endured, some of the brutal killings—it's uh, not just shooting someone. The way they mutilated the bodies and did Beheading a lot little of little babies, yeah. yeah, just a lot of stuff I can't even repeat. And and. They report these. I'm talking about people in the media now. They report what happened, but they always have a, a big butt. You know, it's the whole Kim Kardashian thing. You got everything has to be followed with a big butt, and um. And we cannot lie. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so they talk about, oh yeah, well, uh, Hamas did murder, uh, you know, forty babies, but you know, what about all the babies that uh, Israel killed in, in Gaza? <laughs> You know, they try to justify everything. They're they're very uh, very hardworking Islamic propagandists. Um, and you know what I find interesting about that is that you know we we just saw um, some we're still seeing some of the J six uh, fallout, correct? And yet, you've got a member of Congress shrieking into a microphone, "What?" is wrong with you and yet here are people who had issues with um the way that we saw uh elections being that the that the integrity was compromised in an election and uh we're trying to peaceably assemble and yet they're rounded up but these folks are getting a medal and they're 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 praising and glorifying baby killers. I just don't get that. I don't understand how on one side you have a 
well, on both sides, you have a First Amendment right to assemble and to protest. President Trump, the last tweets, when he, before he was deplatformed, it said, hey, make it peaceable, make sure you're not, you know, comport yourself, can, you know, appropriately, blah, 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 right? And so this thing happens, and we believe now, because of all the footage that Tucker Carlson has released and all of the things that we now know, um, that it was, uh, there was a little bit of uh, light and magic, smoke and mirrors there, that, that it wasn't really what we uh, were led to believe by a complicit media. And yet, on the other side, you've got these people that are now doing these pro-Hamas uh, rallies and all of that kind of stuff, who also have a free speech right to believe whatever they want to believe and talk about it. But yet, you see all the stuff that BLM did, Antifa, and now these pro-terrorist uh, rallies, and nary a word from anybody. I mean, that a member of Congress would, Congress would shriek to a president, what is wrong with you now? I mean, I'm sure a lot of us on the right scream at that, scream that at the TV all the time. What is wrong mm -hmm. with you? Uh, especially like Brian said, when he says things like, well, you ain't black or, you know, whatever, I'll put y'all back in chains. But I'm just saying that the, 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 hypocrisy uh the dichotomy of the the way that the two are handled just just escapes me you know and, and it's interesting in my omar these congresswomen talib and omar they are the least uh pro-palestinian members of congress you know they may have a palestinian flag outside their office but no one in Congress is advocating as much harm to the Palestinian people as uh, Tlaib and Omar. If you really want a happy, thriving, independent Palestinian state, then the last thing you should be doing is defending Hamas. Hamas is the enemy of the people of, of Gaza, the Palestinians, if you want to use that term. Um, and they will never have anything fruitful on this earth as long as they're under the yoke of Hamas. So, and 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 that's uh, that's a big issue with Israel going into uh, Gaza supposedly in order to wipe out um, Hamas. You see all these people from America, from Europe, all these prominent players, these protests in the streets all over the world, demanding that Israel temper their aggression. They call it proportionate retribution and so forth. They're doing everything possible to pressure Israel into not retaliating for the October 7th attack. And, and to a degree, it, it, it has worked, you know, it's worked, worked a lot in the past. And and as of today, Israel still has not gone into Gaza with ground forces, especially to the degree that they should because of all this international pressure. But like I said, Israel will never be um, will never be free and the people of Gaza will never be free and there will never be a peaceful two-state two solution as long as Hamas exists. And if you support the people of Gaza, if you want them to be successful, and progress, then you should support Israel going into Gaza and doing what they have to do. And I just want to show you the, the level of hatred that's being taught to the people, like the people of Gaza. It's really extraordinary. This is awful.
This is awful. Say one more time. So you basically have, I don't know if this is a parent or a teacher, but you have a, an adult woman with two little girls who are on their knees with their hands behind their back. Mm. The two little girls are supposedly emulating uh, Israelis. And she's basically teaching these children how the proper way to handle Israelis, mm. which is to execute them in this style. So this is a great example of how they are teaching hatred to the people of Gaza. Toward- and I don't understand that because, you know, I am a Christian. And of course, you know, I'm not a perfect Christian. But here's the thing. In the religion that I follow, we have a big G God who basically sacrifices himself for his people. That is a religion of love. He loved us so much that he gave the, he gave his, he gave his son's life, you know? Um, And yet you've got a religion that a religion that is teaching this kind of hatred. How do you reconcile that? How do you justify that? I'm not saying that everybody who follows this religion believes that, but there's this fundamentalist sect that has this hatred that would create such a video where kids are acting this out. It just, it, it, it's shocking to me. It's yeah, shocking it's, to me. It's Islamism, is you know, it's, oh. and they promote it through this kind of uh, propagandist teaching of, you know, hatred and you talk about a two-state two state solution, you know, children who grow up in that environment, they'll be adults. They're never going to accept Israel as a as a partner in the area. Um, they, they never, there's never going to be peace in that region as long as you're teaching Arab children to, to kill Jews in that fashion. Um, so, and like I said, the only solution I see is just to eliminate Hamas completely I remember after World War II, um, Germany was not allowed to have a, a Nazi party going forward. And it's the same in, in Japan where we would not allow, you know, J- Japan to have a military. So I think I think we're going to need some sort of uh, aggressive military response by Israel once and for all to get this sorted out. Well, and there you have it. Another episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. Be sure to go to acons.substack.com. There you will see links to this podcast, which you should subscribe to, as I said earlier, and also uh, our commentary and everything uh, that we do on social media. You can find us there. So this is Marie signing off from Studio C. And DK from New Jersey. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of African American Conservatives, the soul of the conservative movement. You can find us online at acons.substack.com, anchor.fm forward slash AACONS. And also, you can support our work at anchor.fm 
forward slash AACONS forward slash support.